the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you kindly, and uh, welcome on in to this Wednesday edition of Lifeline. My, the week is rolling so quickly, then I realized, well, of course, we all had Monday off. But here we are, midweek, and uh, much to talk about on today's program. So let's just dive right in, shall we? Um, A lot of us, I think, are, are... maybe painfully aware of the growing so-called generation gap. Now, this this notion of a gap between the generations in terms of values and ethics and understanding and all of that, it really kind of first came into being, at least in terms of, of um, a conversation piece, back in the 60s and, and 70s. And uh, I guess that folks of that time, if they had had a time machine to be able to travel forward to today, would think, wow. Wow, we had it easy compared to you all. (laughs) Today, that gap seems to be ever widening. And yet, in the modern workplace, it's not unusual to find two, three, sometimes even four generations all working together. But are they really collaborating together or simply colliding How can we foster not only better understanding, but ultimately create a work environment, a team environment, and this applies to ministry as well, that would help foster the notion that everybody brings value to the table. It's just different types of value. Let's talk about it. Joining me now is best-selling author Dr. Tim Elmore. His most recent book is called A New Kind of Diversity, Making the Different Generations on Your Team a Competitive Advantage, and newly released by Maxwell Leadership. You're certainly familiar with John Maxwell. I've been a guest on this program many, many times down through the years. And Dr. Elmore, a delight to have you with us. Thank you, Craig. Great to be with you, too. You know, oftentimes this notion of uh, generation gaps uh, typically seems to be met with the booze and (laughs) sour faces and the notion that, wait a minute, no, 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 you're mixing metaphors. These two groups are always going to clash. Forget about to collaborate. Are you kidding me? Let's keep one group at one end of the building and keep the other group at the (laughs) other end of the building and never the twain shall meet. But your new book, your new book argues to just the opposite, that in fact, coming together, bringing these two or multiple groups together um, can can actually become an asset to an organization as opposed to a liability. I'm fascinated. Tell me more. Well, I, I really mean it when I say that. I think the typical manager would often say, well, our goal is to tolerate each other. Maybe you wouldn't say that, but, you know, the feeling we got to put up with these young whippersnappers or those old dinosaurs. 
But I actually believe just like ethnic diversity or gender diversity broadens our perspective, you got a Gen Zer coming in right out of college. You have a millennial that's 33. You got a Gen Xer that's 48 and a boomer that's 62. All of them are going to have different perspectives. And if we add the value, we're going to find that our office is full of, of modern elders and young geniuses. And um, if we would listen, not just preach at each other, it, it would be amazing. And, and what I try to cite in the book is story after story after story of how organizations and teams have benefited from the connection, building a bridge rather than a wall. And Craig, quite frankly, I think we can in our brains to build walls when we see people that are just different than we are. Now help me understand, because I can imagine what some are thinking right now. Yeah, I kind of get what you guys are saying. But, you know, at the end of the day, there seems to be very strong opinions formed at sort of both ends of the continuum. Uh, the more seasoned veterans look at the younger generation and say, ah, you know what? They don't know anything. They're just a bunch yeah, of, you yeah. know, up and comer hot shots that are trying to climb the, climb the corporate ladder with a, the least amount of work as possible. They don't have any reference points they don't understand yeah, yeah. and then you've got the opposite that says yeah these old guys they know everything but everything that they know is just ancient history so it's yeah. exactly so there, there's there's a sense of disdain in both directions but but the oddity as you point out in the book a new kind of diversity that is that both bring extreme value to the table if we just learn how to recognize what that value is. Absolutely. I'll tell you a quick story. In the book, I talk about Tony. Tony was 20 years old when he had a part-time job finishing out college. He worked at a paint store, a major retail brand paint store. And while he was there, Craig, he, he starts a TikTok account, starts taping himself, recording himself, mixing paints together and, you know, creating shades of colors that have never been seen before or whatever. Well, Tony's TikTok account goes viral. He gets 1.7 million followers, 37 million views. Well, suddenly this 20-year-old thinks, wow, this, we could use this for marketing. We could monetize this. You know, there's a million more followers we don't have here. So Tony puts a slide deck together and asks to meet with the executives to kind of pitch the idea. Tony did not get one person interested in listening to him. Didn't get one set of eyeballs to look at the slide deck. Tony did get something he didn't expect. He got fired. Because those older managers were just sure that he was distracting to the customers or be stealing the paint or probably doing this on company time. And Tony proved later he didn't do any of those three things, but he fired him. Now, get this. Tony moves to Florida from Ohio, now has over 2 million followers, and he started his own paint store. Now, there's probably a lot to that story we don't understand, but one thing I think I understand for sure, has that group of leaders listened? Even though they were 57 years old or whatever they were, they might have found a whole new way to do their work better. So I think there's an intuition that the younger generation brings on where culture is going. And there's an insight that clearly my generation has as baby boomers that say, well, let me give you some timeless insights I picked up over the years that you'll need as you grow older. Um, that's what I'm lobbying for. And that's what I think we're missing with this gap that we see that's wider now than ever, I think. And certainly as we see the rapid pace at which 
technology is developing. I mean, it, yeah. it, it used to be, and I want to really date myself here, that you could go 10, 15 years without a big, giant leap yeah. in technology, and then it went from 10 to 15 years to 10 years to five years. Now it seems like the lifespan of new technology seems to be rolling out with something brand new every couple of years, if even yeah. that. And so Absolutely. the ability for us to be agile enough, to be responsive enough, and I'm wondering if maybe part of this issue is, at least for the older seasoned vets, is a sense of fear because it's yeah. happening so fast, they don't get a chance to get comfortable with it. Or as they start to get comfortable, one slice of technology, boom, <laughs> along comes the next one. What I just learned Facebook. I just learned MySpace. Now, what is this Facebook thing? Now, wait a minute. Instagram or TikTok. Hold on. I'm lost. And so yeah. I'm wondering if a big part of this is almost... Uh, how should we say this, Doctor Elmore? O- almost a, a a protective mechanism. We we fear what we don't understand, and yeah. so therefore it's easier for us to just shoot it down, or in the sad case of Tony, eliminate it, as opposed yeah. to saying, "Okay, this might stretch me a little bit, but I want to be open to s- continue to grow and learn." Yeah, I have the very struggle that you're describing. I am sixty three. But I love Gen Z. I love the millennials. Now, are they different? Absolutely. But here's my, here's my observation. The gap, the generation gap we're talking about was around in the 1960s. In fact, John Poppy coined the term with Life Magazine when the baby boomers were the new kids on the block. But my theory is the gap has gotten wider as the screens in our life went from public to private. Mm. So back in the 60s, um, I remember we had one screener in our house. It was a black and white TV. We all gathered around and watched I Love Lucy. We laughed together. We talked together. We enjoyed it together. Fast forward to today, we've all got our own screen in our hand, and it's a smartphone. And now our daughter, perhaps who's 17, she's on a completely different platform. You know that. We, in fact, we know she's got an Instagram account. We have no idea she's got five Finsta account, fake Instagram, where she's developing personas and talking to God knows who she's talking to. So I feel like right now we can be in echo chambers more than ever before, and we've got to do the work to come out of those. Here's my uh, one of the analogies I use in the book, Craig. If we hop on a plane and we fly to, let's say, China, we know when we get off that plane, we need to work harder at connecting with people because... They probably speak a different language here. They probably have different customs. They probably have different values. Bingo. When I talk to a Generation Z, 20-year-old, different language, different customs, different values. I need to do the work that I would do in another country with that young man or young woman that's in front of me in the office right now. And it's interesting, and I want to dive into this a bit deeper when we come back after the break. There's oftentimes, I think, the the misconception that younger generations, and I speak this from the perspective of a slightly older generation, that younger generations don't care. But is it a matter that they don't care or that they care differently? I mean... To you, you were raised that in a certain work environment, say the office, you wear a coat and tie, you wear a clean pressed shirt, you do that five days a week. What is this casual Fridays about? And then we went from casual Fridays to casual Monday through Fridays, and suddenly that older generation went, oh, well, these kids, they just don't care about their appearance. Or is it that they care differently? 
we don't share the same exact values, but we still have values. So how do we kind of put that through the filter or, or maybe interpret that as we would a foreign language into a language that we can effectively communicate with to not only grow from one another, but ultimately grow our organization, be it a business or a ministry. We're going to explore that dynamic as we continue our conversation with best-selling author Dr. Tim Elmore. The new book is called A New Kind of Diversity, Making the Different Generations on Your Team a Competitive Advantage. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to our conversation. Best-selling author Dr. Tim Elmore with us tonight. His new book called A New Kind of Diversity, Making the Different Generations on Your Team a Competitive Advantage. Newly published, by the way, by Maxwell Leadership. And you can get more information online by going to growingleaders.com. Dr. Elmore, I'm curious. You know, oftentimes the complaint we hear is, well, these, these kids, they don't care. They're sloppy in their appearance. They're sloppy uh, when they show up to work. They come in, they work all night long, they leave pizza grease all over everything. They just don't care. Is it that they don't care or just that we care differently? And if so, how do we get each side to talk to the other so that we can find more in which we have in commonality, number one, so we can push the organization forward, and how we can come to learn and appreciate the differing skill sets that each of these groups bring to the table to create more of a collaborative kind of atmosphere? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I do think you're right. It's just that they care differently and perhaps for different reasons. So I was raised just how you described. Have a good work ethic, Get be punctual, get there on time, get your work done. And that was in itself a value. Well, they would say, don't tell me what, tell me why. And once they learn the why, I have noticed the 20-somethings in our office are amazing workers once they figure out the why. But every leader in their life, Craig, up to this point just about, has been prescriptive. We prescribe every step of the way, all the what's, but not the why's. So here's some data that might be interesting for your listeners. When I surveyed respondents from all five generations that might be in a workplace today, and I asked the question, what do you want most from other generations when they interact with you? Well, you can imagine I got a whole bunch of answers from each one. But three answers came up in every single generation. Number one was humility. The young and the old said, when you approach me with humility, you're communicating. I realize I don't know all the answers. I'm willing to learn. I love that. The second one was respect. Now, that's not a new term. Thank you, Aretha Franklin. We've, we've, we've <laughs> known about respect for 50, 60 years now. But, but here's what I typically do as an older generation guy. I say to that young person, all right, I'll give you a chance, but you have to earn my respect. I have learned I need to begin with belief. And if I begin with Cam, who's 22 years old, with respect and belief, he reciprocates it. So humility, respect. The third one caught me by surprise. All five generations said, I'd love to be approached with curiosity. In other words, when you're curious, you're saying, I bet I could learn something from you. I'll probably pick up something. You'll probably have something to offer me. I want to know. So imagine a workplace or, for that matter, a family reunion at Christmas. 
there's humility, respect, and curiosity. I can only imagine it's going to get better. So that's how I often tend to talk to folks. And we all know intuitively that's right, but I don't know that we do that all the time. Yeah, and there is the challenge that we don't do it with curiosity. We do it oftentimes, yeah. I think, with disdain. We have a pre- yeah. preconceived idea, and people yeah. can read that. And I think it works both ways, whether you're talking about younger generations having a disdain for those in front of them or vice versa. Yeah, no doubt about it. In fact, I, I'll admit the baby boomer generation back in the 60s and 70s, we were wondering if these old dinosaurs were ever going to get out of the way. And then, of course, you know, now the boomers are in charge of everything, including government. And we've had our own flaws and our own failures. So I, I think we've all got to step back and get perspective. You know, something dawned on me the other day. I don't know if this is relevant or not. You tell me if it is. But when I think about even the political spectrum right now, on the one side, there's progressives. On the other side, there's a, cons- there's a conservative. I tend to be conservative. But you know what? The root word of both of those terms make a lot of sense. Progressive is taken from the word progress. Well, we all want to make progress. The root word for conservative is conserve. Well, we all want to conserve the timeless virtues and values that our grandparents taught us. What if we could conserve what's timeless, but then be timely in the way we approach the problems we have? I think we could really do something with our country. So I'm lobbying for let's harness the power of every generation and see what can happen. Absolutely. And and along the way, uh, before our, our time begins to, to uh, slip away on us here, walk us through, if you would, some of the ways in which we can begin to, to foster this sense of not only collaboration, but, but yeah. earning trust. I mean, you oftentimes hear about, well, we're, we're taking the entire team out on a trust exercise. Do yeah. things like yeah. that really work? Well, sometimes they do, but a lot of times they seem a little bit artificial to people. They go, I know what you're trying to do, you know, and so it kind of gets past them. Um, One practice we do at our office that I recommend in the book is called reverse mentoring. It's not my term. In fact, Jack Wells came up with it, you know, gosh, 30-some years ago. But reverse mentoring is when an older generation or a senior veteran in, in on a team meets up with a younger generation person and they swap stories. You could always find common ground when you swap stories. But then the older clearly imparts some timeless sage wisdom to the young. Here's how to succeed in this place. But then they switch hats. And the young then is sought out by the old as a mentor for some superpower they bring to the table. Maybe it's how to monetize that app like Tony taught the paint store way back in the day. Um, so reverse mentoring means I don't go in just to impart, but I also I also come to listen. And um, I'm telling you, this just makes a huge difference. I share a quick acronym that's just easy to remember. Um, you know how we use the term, here's the leg you have to stand on? So I take a leg, A-L-E-G. The letter A reminds me, I need to start by asking, not telling. I need to ask questions. And when I ask questions, they feel important and valued. The letter L is listen well. When I listen to someone, they feel heard. The letter E is empathize. When I empathize with someone after I've listened and, and heard them, they feel um, you know, valued and, and, and understood. And then G is guide. But I've earned my right to guide them, not with the badge on my shirt, 
but with the relationship I've, I've, I've used to connect with them. And that's what I think, I'll just speak for me, that's what I have to keep reminding myself of every day. Yeah, they do seem like they lack work ethic and they don't seem to get it. They're scrolling on their phones during work hours. But if I connect with them at the heart level, if I seek connection rather than control, I get, I get influence. And that's what I think we need to pursue. Love it. Some great thoughts and, of course, a good um, sort of launching pad for these kinds of discussions within your organization. The book, again, is called A New Kind of Diversity, Making the Different Generations on Your Team a Competitive Advantage. Newly published by Maxwell Leadership. More information available by going online to either Tim's website at timelmore.com. That's timelmore.com or at growingleaders.com. Our thanks to Dr. Tim Elmore for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Ross. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Want to turn a corner into dealing with an important topic and, and one that ironically around the periphery I think we're all familiar with. You've, you've heard comments of, along the order, for example, when it comes to um, sports training, things of this sort, exercise, the old phrase, no pain, no gain, right? It's designed with the thought in mind of testing your endurance and stretching your ability. That certainly can be a helpful way that pain can bring about advancement and growth and development. Certainly, pain can also serve us as a warning of danger. I mean, if you get a little close to the burner and start to feel it smack, you're inclined to rapidly pull your hand away before you do third-degree burn damage to yourself. So that's another case where pain can be your friend. But sadly, I think when it comes to emotional pain, we oftentimes see it singularly as an enemy and never in the form of being beneficial. So how can we change our thinking in that arena? And and are the ways in which pain, in fact, can be our friend, so to speak? <laughs> Don Damon, a lot to unpack. Don, of course, is the founder of Braveheart Mentor Coaching. She coaches uh, women over 50 at Success in Life and uh, multiple award-winning author and um, pastor of a church for a long time as well, recently retired. Don, always a delight to have you with us. Hey, Craig, thank you for having me again. It's always good to hear your voice. You sound like you're doing wonderful. Well, you're, you're using pain for your advantage. Pain for some gain. And let's talk about that because yeah. a lot of people, boy, they like to eschew any kind of a painful experience. And I, I think we can certainly all understand and relate to that. But is it necessarily always something that we should run from? Or are there ways in which, as I kind of suggested, when it comes to things like a warning sign, or or advancement of, of improving our own, to say, physical uh, well-being, that it can be our friend? Pain is definitely something that can be our friend. It is a great motivator. Our brain is wired to respond quickly to pain messages. We know that it's a stop doing this and do something else. And like you said in the beginning, that can be good for us if we're touching a hot stove or something that can actually harm us. That pain messages to stop are not helpful for us when we are experiencing the pain that's producing a good benefit for us. Then we have to embrace pain. We have to push past that signal to stop and keep on going to get the benefit. But you know, our brain is wired to avoid, for us to avoid pain and discomfort. We don't like unfamiliar territory. 
And so a lot of times we get stuck, Craig, because it's going to be painful to keep going, to change, to have transformation. So it does it come down to a matter of not just sort of historically our relationship with pain, but also learning how to sort of rewire it, so to speak? To make pain our friend, to yeah, reframe how we think about it and actually get excited. And let's make a distinction right now. We're not talking about pain that's harmful. We're not talking about the fact that you would be in danger let, there's a distinction between, you know, when I'm experiencing some pain, I can say to myself, I can do hard things. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Millions of people are uncomfortable. Millions of people don't eat food tonight. It's okay. Because we love our comfy, cozy, cushy lives. But then if you can use pain and recognize that, you know what, actually, I have to cross through this threshold of pain to get to the bonus, to get to the reward and the prize that's on the other side. I have to press pain, pass pain to improve my body or to reset my metabolism. Yeah, I'm going to feel hungry. Yeah, that's painful. It's really more discomfortable than anything, discomforting. But if I don't press past it, I'm not going to get that body I want. I'm not going to discipline myself to exercise. Or what about even just this in personal growth and development, if I don't turn off the TV, if I don't say no to some of those social events, if I don't experience some of that pain of being, oh, I got to do the hard stuff, I don't get promoted, I don't elevate, I don't grow, I don't write that book. <laughs> I know a lot about saying no to things as an author. I have to push past pain all the time to write and create, and I want to be with people, I want to be social. It's like, no. I've got to experience hard. I've got to push past the pain. I've got to find my edge and push past it to get the reward. Well, ask anybody, for example, that has gone through surgery. You know, when I went through my mm -hmm. cancer experience here, uh, I don't know, seven years ago now, yeah. uh, and uh, the the late afternoon, early evening of the surgery, when the nurse showed up and said, "Mr. Roberts, um, boy, you've got some color back in your face now. Let's go for a walk." I, I'm thinking, "Yeah, this oh. is a joke." And then she said, "No, I'm 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 serious. I'm here to help you get some exercise." And and I'm thinking, okay, Alan Funt is going to step out from behind the curtain at any moment now. Uh, older uh, exactly. folks will, will get that reference. Uh, well, that never happened. And it, it took a little bit of initial persuasion. But okay, I got up, you know, having been sliced open like a Christmas turkey and did oh, that little walk. And then the physical therapist and the nurse explained that the faster we get you moving, the faster you're going to heal. And oh, by the way, this little set of stairs over here that seems like <laughs> Mount Everest, um, the, you know, we don't want you to hurt yourself. But if right. you can push through the pain, the benefit yeah. is going to be you will heal that much faster and get out of our bedroom and get into your own. And boy, I like the sound of that. And so every day, if they said, we want you to do two laps around the the nurse's station, I would do three. And if the next day they said, you did three yesterday, do four, I'd come back and do six. Only because I knew that there was an, an innate benefit. 
yeah. pushing myself through. Again, you don't want to hurt yourself. You don't want to pull stitches open and create another problem. But maybe sometimes just the understanding that, that there are ways in which that pain can make you stronger. The pain can make you stronger, and it's oftentimes fear of the unfamiliar, fear that stops us. Fear says, you're going to hurt, you're going to die, you're going to look stupid, your your reputation is at risk, you're unsafe. And, you know, that is just our, our old lizard brain, if you will, saying, you know, stop what you're doing because I don't, My bra- the brain's number one job is to detect threat. And it says, no, let's keep you here. But just like your example, if we give into that fear, if we give into that rationalization that our brain wants to give us right away to say, stop doing this, we actually can do a disservice to ourselves. We don't make the change. We, we, don't, we don't get out of that toxic relationship. We don't press our bodies. We don't go for the, uh, to take that test. We don't study. We stay in apathy and you know, average, we stay small, we limit ourselves. So we have to find that edge and be willing to get outside of our comfort zone. Otherwise, the way we live, it's really called staying in the box, staying in the cave, protecting ourselves. And because we avoid discomfort, we do, we stay stuck, we stay addicted, we stay broke, we stay in bad relationships because change is scary but it's also necessary. Push your boundaries, take more territory, don't live small. Motivation won't come. Don't wait for that, by the way, because it won't come. Uh, You weren't motivated to get up out of that hospital bed. You were motivated to stay put. And that's the way our brain wants to keep us. But if you don't, you'll have discomfort of another kind, Craig, because that box, it's really scary when we get older and it's called regret. I should have done more. I should have taken the risk. I should have taken the leap. I should have changed when I had the time. So I encourage people to face their fears and make necessary changes. Risk it. Push the boundaries. Cap your potential, for goodness sakes. And is a big part of this as we sort of make these excuses and, and get engaged in, in you know, degrees of rationalization, the what, what ifs, uh, is a lot of that really based in fear of the unknown? And I'm going to I'm going to venture out a little bit here and probably get myself in trouble and maybe a little bit of lack of faith at the same time, because, you know, there that element of trust needs to be there. I, I needed to trust the nurse that the nurse knew what she was talking about. And so sometimes you have to kind of step out on faith. And and even though you can calculate in your mind, well, what if I fall? What if I tear a stitch open? What if I bleed out? You know, your brain immediately goes to all the worst case scenarios. And I would imagine that that the enemy helps to, to help reinforce some of those negative worst case scenario thoughts, doesn't it? I agree with that. I think that fear is totally a thief of our dreams and yes a lack of faith or or a floundering faith it's maybe it's like i don't know if this is god i don't know it maybe it's wrong maybe you know god god doesn't want me to test him i should stay safe and and again those rationalizations that really serve to protect our status quo and sometimes we even get angry at people who would come to us with faith statements like go for it take a risk we say hey 
you know, we feel inside, don't challenge me and don't, you're triggering me, don't trigger me, um, don't push me. And we resent that. But and we try to intimidate those people who would try to speak faith into our lives. And then again, like I said, we stay stuck in pain of regret, the pain of apathy, unfulfilled purpose, the death of dreams. And I believe that, yes, like Peter in the boat, he could have stayed comfortable. He could have stayed in there with all those other sissies, I mean, disciples. He could have, but he said, I'm going to take a risk. I'm do something really scary. I'm going to get out of the boat. And look what he had as a result. The, the faith that it took. Yeah, we can say he, 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 all those messages that we preached that he started to, you know, fall in the water. He took his eyes off Jesus. Yeah, but he also did the thing. So don't fear failure. Get out. Take a step. Get on that water. What an amazing testimony he has now to say. I was falling in the ocean and Jesus rescued me. And now I know I can go anywhere with him because he's He's going to come through for me. Take that risk. Take a step of faith. You bet. Yeah, we'll, we'll never know to what degree God has got our back unless we allow him the opportunity to get our back. Don, well, we appreciate yeah. the time. This is really an important topic, and I hope, you know, even though we've just literally scratched the surface of this subject matter tonight, I really hope it's it's maybe opened some eyes this evening for people that have uh, been fearful of pain, fearful of taking risk. And again, we're, we're not saying going out and doing something crazy, but, you know, right. a, a little bit of stretching yourself just beyond the point of your sense of self-confidence that then allows the Lord to come in and meet you in those gaps, uh, right? You know, Lord, I, I believe, help thou my unbelief, right? Uh, to, to allow that stretch of our faith. And you can only do it by engaging. You can only do it through action. And, uh, and learning that you can leverage the power in pain for personal growth and personal transformation. More information available at Dawn's website, dawndamon.com. That's D-A-W-N-D-A-M-O-N, just exactly the way it sounds. It's spelled dawndamon.com. Thank you, Dawn. As always, we appreciate your valuable insights. Just about uh, 5.46-ish as the crow flies. Where is that crow flying toward? That's what we all want to know. Let's get a timeout. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, this is perhaps a great example of one might be best served if one got a little information before opening one's mouth. Uh, is there a special category like that for politicians? There certainly ought to be. Uh, the example that I cite here is a member of the California State Legislature uh, who had a lot to say about the operation of pregnancy centers across our state. In particular, Assemblymember Pillar Shivo accused California's pro-life pregnancy care centers of using, quote, deception to attract clients. This took place during a hearing in Sacramento last month and went on to say that none of these organizations are even licensed. We need a, we need a buzzer in here. Uh, wrong, and um, 
The folks at the SCV Pregnancy Center down in Santa Clarita, which happens to be in Assemblymember Shivo's district, um, stood up and defended themselves. Let's learn more. Greg Burt joins us, Director of Capital Engagement for the California Family Council. And it's tragic in a day and an age when there's so much talk about the importance of a woman's right to choose that that doesn't apparently in the mind of some, and I'm going to guess in this case, Assemblymember Shivo, that that doesn't include a right to all information and all options, apparently just some. Well, it's it's really sad in California that promotes itself as, as a choice state, right? But they really only want you to make one choice, right? Uh, a woman who finds herself uh, alone and pregnant, uh, the only option that California encourages is abortion, as opposed to, you know, maybe we should try and uh, support centers that encourage people to have their kids. And, you know, so it was it was very upsetting when we were in the hearing because uh, uh, Assemblywoman Pilar Shivo, she's new this year, and she'd introduced a bill, uh, AB 710, and the whole point of the bill was to create a public awareness campaign that exposes these fake pregnancy centers who are out there pretending, you know, to care for women, uh, but they're really not licensed. They're fake clinics, and they mislead women into thinking they're going to get uh, information on abortion. And when they get there, you know, they don't do abortions. And I mean, that was what she was saying in committee hearing. It was so obviously false. Um, it, the, and the crazy thing is that she didn't, like, mention a particular pregnancy center who was doing this. Like, okay, who are you talking about? Like, show me the website. There's 162 pregnancy centers uh, in California, and she was not pointing to any specifics. She was pointing to NARAL, Pro-Choice California, who had showed up to make broad-brush accusations and they pointed to some studies that they had done that were, you know, a decade old. And even those studies don't list the specific uh, bad actors. And so I think she just trusted these people. Um, and so we, we just could not let her lie like that and, and let her get away with it. Moreover, the fact that growing numbers of these centers across the state have gone through great expense and great effort to become medically licensed clinics that have doctors on staff, that have nurses on staff, that are capable of answering the the medical-related questions uh, uh, as it pertains to a pregnancy. Uh, you know, it, so it, 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 it's, it really defies one's imagination of logic that you would have a member of the Assembly get up and say things without really having all the facts. Of course, we've seen a lot of that demonstrated in recent years in the United States Congress, so maybe I shouldn't be surprised. But to sully the good name of many of these centers all across the state is really tragic, particularly when it's all being done in defense of this notion of choice, when in fact, when they say choice, they don't mean, I mean, it's it's the equivalent, I think, Greg, of going into a restaurant and being told, well, what's on the menu tonight? And they say pot roast, and you say, what else? And you say, well, that's it. Well, wait a minute, you know, we would probably walk out and say, lousy menu, menu, no choices. And this is, I think, the the abortion equivalent that they, they, they want to offer you one choice, but not give women rounded and complete information and then trust them to be able to make a decision for themselves. You're right. And, and it's, it, this what she said in committee is what's being said by 
many uh, pro-choice people, even the Attorney General Bonta has been accusing uh, pregnancy centers of deception and nefarious, uh, you know, actions without actually saying what exactly they're doing that they don't really like, right? It's all just deceptive. And so we decided to actually, I wonder if she's actually even been to the pregnancy centers in her own district, right? That's what we thought. So we looked them up. Who are they? Because we didn't know them particularly. And we found, well, there's two. And look, you go to their website and they're licensed. They have their licensing number on their website. And on every page of their websites, they say, we don't do abortion, right? So it's like, this is ridiculous. So we called them up and said, would you mind us coming down to your district? We would love to defend your name and your reputation in the district. Get the local media that covers her on a regular basis. Get them talking about and holding her accountable for what she's saying up here at the Capitol. And so they were enthusiastic about doing that. So we went down there. Their local paper came out and did two stories and confronted her. And I think she was a little shocked. Uh, they, they, were, they were not used to having uh, pregnancy centers call them out or anybody call them out when uh, they lie about what these pregnancy centers actually do. So we need to do more of this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, calling our representatives to accountability is is critically important. And, you know, if they want to have a conversation about um, whether or not abortion is morally appropriate, okay, that that's that's legitimate. But at least let's start with the understanding of having all the same facts at hand here and, and not go um, making blanket false accusations against organizations that work hard, that care about women, and are largely uh, staffed by a lot of volunteers and certainly um, funded not through grants from the federal government. Um, they're not money-making propositions by any stretch of the imagination, but rather they are there to serve women. So I uh, appreciate you guys jumping on top of this, getting out in front of it. And uh, uh, hopefully this will be a lesson, if at the minimum, to uh, Assemblymember Scheibel, maybe more members of the Assembly that have similar faulty thinking. No, I, I sent uh, what we did, the press release, to every member of the Assembly and the Senate. Um, sort of as a, a warning that uh, we're watching what you're saying. And if you say something, you know, obviously false about a pregnancy center, we will come to your district, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Greg, again, congratulations on uh, shedding some light on this. And we appreciate you joining us here for a quick update. Greg Burt, Director of Capital Engagement for the California Family Council. More information available on the web at California Family. Dot O-R-G. Six o'clock from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.